I would say that people are blaming money for the problems that maybe they're having in their relationship when it's really something a bit deeper. As we transition from the Reparenting Yourself mini-series, wasn't that awesome? There were so many great topics that we covered. Then we move on to the series on change, but not just any kind of change, really big changes in our lives. And uh, I thought about this week, especially as we are transitioning, Valentine's week was the perfect time to air this interview with Andy Hill, host of the Marriage, Kids and Money podcast. And when I think about money from a cultural standpoint, I think about all of the subconscious decisions and judgments we make on ourselves and on each other. I mean, think about it. Do you factor money as a way to measure your value or your partner's value in a relationship? I would venture to say that we all do in some way. And very often we choose our friends, our partners, our coworkers, based on financial status. Whether we know it or not, we just kind of gravitate towards each other. And especially in American culture, I want you to go on Instagram, go look right now and look at the account called Wealth. It's simply called at Wealth. And obviously, as you can imagine, it is about uh, building wealth. And some, not all, but some of the advice and quotes that are given seems so toxic. That hustle culture of that you know, failure is not an option, those kind of things. And some of those folks have a lot of money and they are rewarded. They are uh, looked up to in this culture. They're worshiped. But a lot of them, some of them are kind of pieces of garbage. In other words, whether we know it or not, Americans tend to put money and worth in the same bucket and very high on the priority list too. And I am guilty of this too. So I'm just kind of putting it out there. As we know, money is the number one cause of divorce. And personally, I believe money is a fantastic tool that can be used as a force for good. More, please. So how do we help our partnerships have a healthier working relationship with money? So I brought on Andy Hill. Andy is the award-winning writer, speaker, and podcaster behind Marriage, Kids, and Money. It's so great. And he's been featured in major media outlets like Business Insider, Market Watch, Kiplinger's Personal Finance, and NBC News. I absolutely loved his advice and especially his story on how he paid off his mortgage, how he was able to to become a millionaire and do it honestly, not that it is not honestly, but do it in a way that was systematic and he teaches people how to do it. And it's really, really great advice. And, uh, and what I loved, I especially loved not only his outlook, his advice, but his guidance on how to teach our kids about money. And so I say this a lot that we've been told as little people to never talk about religion, politics, sex, or money. But I think that not talking about it has got us into this mess. So it has kept us in the dark about each other. And, and, you know, now that sometimes the veil has been lifted and you're like, you believe what? Why? And so we don't understand. We don't understand each other because we never talked about it. So that is why we talk about it today and on this show. Now, really quick, if you haven't subscribed or followed this podcast yet, Culture Changers, 
please take a moment to do that right now. I'd love if you gave me a rating, if you're on Spotify, if you're on CastBox, if you are on uh, iTunes, uh, super would be, would be super appreciative of that. And also, I want you to think about the friends you might have had conversations recently with about finances and make sure you text this episode to them right now. It could really, really help just at the right time. Lastly, if you want more personal updates from me, leave your email at allisonhair.com and you'll get my weekly journal entry with the latest episode sent directly to you. So some of the behind the scenes and some of the really behind the scenes. You won't want to miss even one episode coming up. It's so good. Here is my chat with Andy Hill. So I am curious to know right out of the gates, what are people getting wrong about money and the relationships that that is kind of comes up over and over again in some of the topics? Wow. Yeah. What are people getting wrong? I would say that people are blaming money for the problems that maybe they're having in their relationship when it's really something a bit deeper. You know, money's just a tool. It's just something that we can use to either improve our lives or to make it worse, right? Or whatever. It's just a tool. It's just a thing. So really, when we think inherently about what's going on with our relationship, there's probably something a little deeper going on with the money problems. Maybe these money fights we might be talking about. Oh, she spends too much, or he's always spending all of our money on golf or whatever it is. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, we all have things that we are, that we want to do in life that make us happy. And then maybe there's also things that we're using our money to get away from too. So that, again, this is just a tool, whether it's used for good or bad or, or right or wrong. It's just a thing. So I think people get mad at money. They're like, oh, money's the root of all evil or whatever. The money, money is bad. You know, it's like, no, it's just a tool. However, you're going to use that resource, whether it's money or your time or your energy, those are just tools to get where you want to go. So I think people need to stop punching money and saying, hey, money's so bad. Money's evil. It's just a tool. However you want to use it is your decision. And I'm hopeful that people will use it in accordance with their values of who they want to be as a person, who they want their relationship to be. What, what, what kind of marriage do we want to have? What kind of partnership do we want to have? And are we using our money to help us get there? I think what's interesting about, you've got a blog post about, um, I, I think it's something like five topics of how to strengthen your relationship around money. And I thought it was really interesting because all of it was like asking. Yeah. And what I think from a cultural perspective, we are told not to talk about money, mm-hmm. sex, religion, or politics. And all four of those are why we're in such a problem right now. You those know? are all the like, important things. <laughs> I know. And so I wonder about having those conversations that they can be so weighty, they can be mm-hmm. so loaded, and they can spark you know, really an impact that people don't really understand. How do you, how do you teach people um, based on your experience on how to open that conversation in a way where they're not going to feel attacked or feel like, you know, the, the, I think we haven't been taught right, like, or, or feel like the rug hasn't been pulled out from under us. Yeah. I, I, it's so interesting that you say those four things because, when you really have a really close relationship with someone, call it your good friend or your or your spouse, 
aren't those the fun things to talk about? Really? I mean, everything else just seems so surface level. So when we call it, when you talk about money or, or our past with money, yeah, when you're starting off your relationship, it's, it's important to have some of those conversations early on, maybe in the dating process or as you're, you know, deciding you're going to say, Hey, I do or not. You're going to want to know some important things about the other person, their history, and money can be sort of the entry door to that, you know, whether it's, Hey, do you have uh, a, a, a proclivity to wanting to save more? Do you want to spend more? And why is that? And where, That's where a do those really come good from? question. Yeah, yeah. Where do those come from? You know, where, does that does your does your interest in having more? You know, better house, better car, better things like that come from a childhood where you didn't have very much, where you were like looking for the next meal. You know, mm. so now you're thinking maybe money will help me. You know. Get, grab that life that I've always wanted, or you know, are you a are you a saver? You're like, wait, always want to hold on to it because you know, in the same situation, right. um, you didn't you didn't have a lot when you were growing up, and now that you do have it, you don't want to let it go. So there's there's a background to our money that I think comes from a lot of questions that we can ask our partners, whether it's in the beginning of the relationship, if we're just dating, or hey, if you're 10 years in or 12 years in, like like I am with my wife, it's never too late to really have interesting conversations together with your spouse about why things are the way they are. And yeah, sometimes finances, sometimes money can really lead to those open doors. So just taking, I, I, you, you, you put it off really well in the beginning, Allison, just taking the time to ask and creating the space to ask is the first step. So if you don't have, if you're like running from thing to thing, you're like, ah, I don't have any time for that. Mm-hmm. Make time for that. That is so important. If we're talking about relationship today, if we're talking about marriage today, making time for your spouse, making time for those important conversations is the key to happiness, honestly. So let me throw a wrench in that sure. concept. So ideally, yes, that sounds amazing. But in some cases, some people, uh, take an approach to money where it's like, let me just kind of go ahead until I don't like, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to think about it. You know, so you might have a couple that one's a spender, one's a saver, those kind of things. You know, there's so much shame, I think inherently in how you invest or save or spend your money. And, you know, I love the, the, I heard this in a church one time where they said, you're, money goes where your heart is. Hmm. And that, uh, you know, like if you're, if you're spending a lot of money on alcohol and drugs, you know what I mean? Like it, it really is a powerful evaluation that is required to be able to do that. So how do you approach those situations as well, where, you know, there might be some shame or some guarding towards your spending habits in a way that can be, um, easier. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm going to have to go back to my last answer there because I think making the time to have those conversations to find out where those motivations come from is mm. the most important. And so everybody has a schedule, right? Everybody knows where they're going. Everybody knows how they're going to use their time, right? So that's a big resource that we have mm-hmm. with our time. Money is also a very important resource that we have. So that's why I really encourage people to create a budget. And budgeting kind of sounds restrictive sometimes to people or it sounds like a bummer or whatever. But really, it's the same thing with you planning out your day. How am I going to utilize the hours that I have in my day to best get where I want to go, to best support the values that I have as a human being? Money is the exact same way. How am I going to use my money to 
honor my values, honor my beliefs, honor my culture, honor where I want to go as a family, honor where, where, where I want to go as a person, and making sure those dollars are being utilized to support that. So I'm a big fan of creating a budget. It helps to have helps you to show where all the money's coming in and then where it's going. And to your point, Allison, if you're looking at that budget and saying, man, I spent $200 on booze this month, but I only <laughs> gave $50 to this charity that I say is the most important to me. Is that, is that, is that what I want to do? You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. We, we drink alcohol in our family. I like, I like having a glass of wine with my wife. Uh, we actually have a whole show about us drinking wine. So uh, no shame <laughs> on that. But the whole point is, if you look at those numbers, it's eye-opening to saying, wow, am I really spending $200 a month on that gym that I haven't gone to since last January when I signed up uh, for New Year's resolution? Or can I, should I cancel that and then throw that towards the things that I really want to have I, investing, paying off my debt, getting to where I want to go in life. So I want to talk if we can, if we can riff off of that for a yeah. second. So, you know, there are people that, um, get a rush, get an emotional rush from spending. And some people get an emotional rush from savings. Hmm. And I've noticed at least in my own, um, my own experience that when I do take the time to kind of budget everything out and start canceling some of those things that you no longer need, there is a thrill <laughs> that comes yeah. along with, you know, shutting off that, uh, you know, like that expenditure that you just haven't thought about in a while or haven't done that. There is a sense of control that can be somewhat empowering. Um, I did want to ask you about what happens in relationships when you do have people that are totally opposite of how they spend or save their money, how do, how do you help navigate or, you know, how, what is your view on navigating that? Yeah, well, I think I have personal perspective there, Allison, because my wife and I don't have the same views on money. Even though we, we host a podcast together, it's actually kind of fun because we end up talking quite a bit about our differing viewpoints on money, whether that is our viewpoints on spending, saving, investing, giving, all these different major categories that you can do with your money, we often come at odds with a lot of those things. So how do we solve that? We solve it with open communication. And yes, it's not always getting my way or getting her getting her way. Sometimes it's a a beautiful blend of both. And we found that that type of conversation where we both have our my opinion and her opinion, and then we come together to find what we can do to have our collective shared family goal get met, that is when we are the happiest. But there are still times when she's like, well, I still want to do this thing, or I <laughs> right. still want to do this thing, right? And that's why it's important for us to have some autonomy with our money, because being married as one is fantastic, but it's also nice to have a little autonomy. So what mm -hmm. we try to do is we create separate budget line items within that budget we talked about that are for whatever the heck she wants or whatever the heck I want. I've got Andy fun bucket. She's got Nicole fun bucket and whatever she wants to buy in there. There's no like sort of you know, deciding whether Andy agrees with her or not. She can do whatever she wants. And same thing with me. We also have other things that are important to us. So, you know, her updating the home is really important to her. Uh, me having kids activities for my kids to go play soccer or do soccer camps, that's really important to me too. So we make sure that we allocate things that maybe I wouldn't have done if I was a single guy and maybe she wouldn't have done if she was a single gal, but we all put it in there. It's, it's that document. It's that 
budget that allows us to essentially say, hey, here's what our family values are. Here's what we've decided at the beginning of the month together is the most important to us. And yeah, is there a little bit of you know, uh, fighting in between about what's right and what's wrong, because whatever I think is right, isn't necessarily right or wrong. It's just my opinion of what's right. So when we find our collective, uh, agreement, that's when we are the happiest together as a couple. And that, and that comes through the budget. And it's all through communication too, (laughs) as, as this keeps circling back around, uh, to that, you know, and I'm thinking about my own experience. So I, I handle the money. Um, and one of the things that I learned, so this was way before I was married, I used to uh, work in, uh, work alongside a lot of banks. And so there was a banker there that said, you know, I always have, you know, my, my wife and I both have our own separate bank accounts and we have a joint account for our house bills. We've never had a fight. And so uh, on money. And so I took that on and that uh, works really well. And so I kind of manage the money. My husband is kind of blind to it. You know, like he just doesn't want to deal with it. You know, like he earns his money and it's fine. And we, you know, we kind of live within, you you know, reason with it. But I wonder about, you know, is there a better way if it is one joint account? Is there an optimal way Mm to do it? Or is it really subjective? I honestly think the answer to that is it's completely personal. I don't think there's one right way. I don't think there's one wrong way. There are some people out there who say that there's a right way or a wrong way. I don't agree. I think that uh, every situation is personal. And that's why they call it personal finance. Honestly, it is so individual that your relationship works best to this way. And I'm sure you guys have found iterations to even modify that as yeah. things have gone, you know, say, Hey, we've started this. What if we did this like this? And you both agreed, right? So for Nicole and I, we got to a point where, where I, I was kind of contemplating the same thing. I have so many opinions on the money. Nicole, you have so many opinions on the money. Why don't we just separate it and then just do our own thing? And she's like, no, no, no. I, I like what we're doing. I think this is great. I think just separating it in categories so we can decide who, you know, how we're spending within the budget is fine. That way, you know, we've all got it in one account. So it's sort of our money, but then individual uh, budget line items. So I think there's so many different ways to do this. I have spoken to dozens of couples that either say, hey, yeah, we're all in one joint account or, hey, we have the a hers, mine, and ours kind of thing, or mm-hmm. we have, you know, it, there's just varying ways to do that. And especially with the way technology is set up now, fintech, it just makes it so much easier for you to flip open an app and say, here's my money, here's your money. It just makes it easier. So I don't think that there is a right way or a wrong way. And anybody that tells you that there is, I think that I think that's wrong. I really think everybody's I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to pivot for a second to something that's very, very now, very relevant, very relevant, relevant, relevant. I like relevant. (laughs) I make up words all the time. (laughs) Well, I sound like Howard Stern, you know, like, uh, what is it? Sal from Howard Stern. He always has funny ways of pronouncing things um, (laughs) that are always is getting made fun of. And, and I think I just pulled one. So for any Howard Stern fans, Baba Booey uh, to you. But um, I did want to talk about something that is very, very current right now. And I would be so curious to get your take on okay. the great resignation oh, yeah. and people's value of money. And so people are literally leaving and evaluating what their money and their lifestyle and their reevaluation is of what that means. And, you know, some people are living like nomads and they never had that ability to do that before. And so I think 
the culture is shifting in such a powerful way. You know, how does that impact? You know, what do you, what do you, what do you see? What do you see out there from your lens? Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with uh, parents on this one, especially uh, women who've had to make the difficult decision. Hey, um, I have to, or I, I feel like I have to leave my job because my kids are at home doing this virtual school thing and somebody's mm-hmm. got to manage it. I, I don't want to bring somebody else into my home and I don't want to do that. And unfortunately, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, that has been uh, put more on, on on females in our society. Uh, so you've seen a lot of uh, the great resignation hit, hit uh, working females uh, more than males in the past. Um, now that might've changed this year with everything coming big in and out. But honestly, it's one of those things that preparation helps, right? I mean, no, I guess nobody knew a, a great pandemic was coming right. and it was going to change the entire world here, really. Uh, but things like, all right, if I'm going to step away from my job, you know, what am I going to do to take care of the income that's needed uh, for our family? Or, or can I look at that budget and say, what can we take out of this thing that might not be as comfortable as it has been, but will allow me to come home and, and step away from my job for a year or go part-time or take a sabbatical. There are all these different levels that we need to be investigating too, I believe, that it's not just like I have a job or I quit. It's like, okay, can you take a sabbatical? Can you go down to part-time? Can you negotiate with your employer about, hey, I know that you maybe want me in there more than I'm in right now, but this is what needs to be for me, I, I can't go in there five days a week. I need to have some flexible work situation because of what I got going on at my son's school or whatever. So I think we need to be having lots and lots of conversations with our employers about our current situation because because of the great resignation, I think maybe employers are listening a little bit more than they yes. have ever before about the needs of their employees. So I think opening up that door uh, because they might not know your situation as much as you think they know your situation. Mm-hmm. So starting those conversations and continuing to open that up, I think can be helpful for a lot of people. And what stood out to me even about that from an episode you did with Joe Saul Sihai, where he said, all the data shows that what people are not asking for is raises and Mm. that your employers want to give you the raises. But I do think people are opting for really big changes in lifestyle. So whether it is being a nomad or going from San Francisco to, you know, Boise, Idaho and, and making a life there and creating a, a new world that has a different, uh, set of income, requirements or or financial requirements. So it is kind of interesting to see. I'd be interested to see what the landscape looks like, that it is an employee's market or somebody that can, you know, start an entrepreneurial venture and and be able to do that as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm one of those folks. So I left yeah. my job in January of 2020, uh, two months before a pandemic. So wow. recommendations out there, everybody, don't do that. Um <laughs> Do you but really I, think that was a bad thing for that timing? Uh, no. Well, I, I, I joke about it, but uh, it, it was difficult going into it with my my high hopes of, okay, I'm going to be this entrepreneur. I'm going to have the time at home when my kids are away at school for me to do my business and grow it. And then all of a sudden, two months later, they are home with me 24-7, yeah. uh, me managing virtual school as well as trying to grow a new business. Uh, as well as just dealing with the uh, the panic of a pandemic. Am I going to get sick? Am my parents going to get sick? You know, so it was very stressful. And but I mean, I I I 
I'm, I guess I feel a little bit better Were knowing you that shitting bricks in March. <laughs> oh, you know it, you know it, honestly. I mean, I had all these plans, the best laid plans, man. I had right. a year's worth of savings saved up. I had a contract for a company that said, Hey, we're going to essentially, essentially I was going to be making darn near close to what I was making with my full-time job with the work. So it was that a I had lower set. risk. It was yes. a lower risk move for you. But then come summertime, a lot of those right. things started to go away. I lost that contract. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the savings that we had, I started to chip away at, obviously we didn't use all of it cause it, you know, we had a lot saved up, but some of those things where I'm like, I am so prepared. I came to realize that being an entrepreneur is a lot harder than being an employee. You are the sales department. You're the marketing department. You're the legal team. You are HR. You're everything. Not only the the paycheck doesn't come every two weeks anymore. You got to earn the money and then invoice the clients. And then they might not pay you. You got to hunt them down to go make sure they pay you. Mm. These are things that I did not really, I, I knew, but I didn't really know, you know, until I was an entrepreneur. So some of these, I guess these were just wide awake openings. So anytime people are, are online saying, hey man, quit your nine to five and become an entrepreneur. It's the best life ever. I just <laughs> feel like they're not really telling the full story of what it means to be a solopreneur or an entrepreneur because being an employee, there's lots of perks to that. But mm-hmm. if you prepare and you're ready and you have your you have control of your money to say, hey, if I'm going to go from full-time to part-time or I'm going to go from full-time to business owner, I know that that drop in income or that change, I'm going to be able to sustain because I'm in control of my money because I know how much is coming in and how much is going out. So how did you recover in the summer? So you lost that contract. Yeah. How did you pull yourself back up? Well, it was one of those things where um, I just got busy, man. I started selling. Mm-hmm. I started using the skills that uh, you and I were talking before the call, yeah, the, yeah. the corporate sales background that we have. I've always been good at communication and sales and and, and uh, creating relationships with people. So when I thought that I would be fine with one or two relationships that I had uh, built before I jumped, it required me to build uh, eight, nine, or 10 in order to make up for it. And I did. Over time, You know, I continued to create some value for sponsors to contact. Uh, content creation clients. And I just sort of diversified my income enough where it was enough for us to make a living and keep things going. But Mm. also to that point, we had set ourselves up in a financial situation that really made that possible. So we paid off our mortgage early. Uh, we paid it off in five years. So we didn't have a, a mortgage payment to worry about. We That's had saved amazing up- yeah. too. I know that that is kind of one of the, the hooks that you hang your hat on as well from a marketing perspective for both you and your wife. You know, and I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but okay. I think it's a perfect place to, um, to kind of dig in there is when you're thinking about how can I put myself in a better financial situation? It's probably important, like usually people aren't thinking about paying off the mortgage first, you know, is there, can you position or reframe some of the things that seem very daunting to most people, you know, whether it's credit card debt, whether it's mortgage, whether it's uh, whatever, you know, how do you, how do you help reframe that for other people to kind of focus on that and make it exciting instead of something that is restrictive? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say when you hear somebody paying off their mortgage, it might sound a little crazy, especially with rates as low as they are right now. It is something that we did sort of later on in our journey to help us have even more financial freedom to allow us to make lifestyle changes. So for us, lifestyle changes meant me leaving a job that I really wasn't that 
passionate about. And we didn't really need as much money anymore because we didn't have a mortgage and that helped. And, and early on, it meant Nicole could stay at home with the kids. So in the beginning, uh, she had a job that she wasn't really that excited about. I think we both chose a, a major and a career that we were, were not that pumped about. Yeah. Uh, but she went from full-time worker to part-time worker to full-time stay-at-home mom. And so when you, we, when we er, uh, eradicated the debt from our lives as well as the mortgage, it gave us the flexibility to make those types of changes as young parents uh, because change is the only thing that <laughs> that is constant uh, with, with when you're a young parent. And so we wanted that flexibility. But for people starting off that maybe feel a little overwhelmed and maybe they're looking at that credit card bill come January with all the spending they have, I think a great place to start is what we talked about with laying out the budget and understanding where the money is coming in and where it's going out. And then aligning that to your values to say, okay, well, where do I want to be? What are the big dreams that me and my spouse have about where we want to go? Have we had those conversations about where do we want to be in five years? Where do we want to be in 10 years? What do we not want to be worrying about in five or 10 years? And with those dreams, with those conversations that you make time for, you can then allocate your money and your resources to get there. And it doesn't happen overnight. You know, we did some crazy things over the past 10 years. We were, when we started off our journey, we had negative $50,000 net worth when we got, when we got married. So we were in the hole. 10 years later, we are over millionaires now. And it's, it's, it's those little incremental steps along the way that helped us to do that. And so paying off our mortgage was step seven or whatever. But in the middle, you build that budget. You eliminate the debt. You make sure to make time for conversations together so you're always dreaming and having fun along the way. And as you're, and your point, Allison, make sure to celebrate because life is a series of fun, small moments. There's a lot of boring stuff in life. Brushing the teeth, <laughs> driving the kids to practice, driving them to school. Lots of mundane, but you got to celebrate the cool, good things when they happen. When you eliminate your student loans for the rest of your life, have a party, man. Have a party. Grab a bottle of champagne. Yeah. Enjoy yourself. You know, celebrate those moments because those are the little things that you're going to remember when you made those changes in your family life in order to get where you want to go. So taking those micro steps and eventually seeing that, hey, the more of these micro steps that I make, the better my situation is going to be and the more choices I have. Okay. So here's what I want to know from you. Deep question. Andy, why is money so exciting to you? <laughs> money is so exciting to me because I believe it is a tool that can be utilized to create the life you've always wanted. Honestly, uh, we live in a society, we live in a country that allows for that to happen. And it's exciting at times. It can be deflating at times, but when you seriously have control of it, and you tell it what you want to do and the life you want to have, I believe it's powerful. And it has been for us. It has been mm. very powerful for our family. And I can only see it getting better over time. Uh, but yeah, it can be, it, essentially money amplifies the person you already are, right? So if you're kind of a jerk and you get more money, you're going to be even more of a jerk. <laughs> right, you're really if, a jerk. <laughs> if you have not a lot of money and you're a kind person and you want to do good things for the rest of the world and you get more money, I bet you're going to do more of those kind things for the yeah. world. So I believe that it's an amplifier of who you are as a person. And I am on a mission to create more of those kind people that want to give back and create our create a great community just to be the change they want to see in the world. So I'm curious, what was the message that you were taught in your home as a child about money? What were your parents mm -hmm. and, and life like in your house? 
Well, I, I had great influences both from my mom as well as my dad. My dad was a very hard worker, and he showed me the value of hard work and how it can net you a reward. He, he worked very hard all the way from being a mechanic in high school and college to being a, a C-level executive at, a, at an automotive company by the time you retired. So he, he, he took it all the way. And then my mom, she had very good values of saving and investing that I grabbed onto as well. And uh, she also worked very hard. We had a two, two working parent household that showed, yeah, again, you work hard, you'll get a reward. And my mom definitely showed me that putting away a little bit of money every once in a while can help you to have the rewards later on as well. It's not just today's rewards, but tomorrow. So I was very lucky to grow up in that household and I'm, I still have a great relationship with both of them today. I love that. And, you know, we started this conversation off talking about the money is bad kind of <laughs> messaging. You know, when you're thinking about your children and raising them, you know, like I'm careful. I found myself talking to my kids. You know, I have an, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old and they're freaking awesome. Hmm. And, you know, I, I caught myself saying, in, you know, like my son, as you can see, loves Legos. And so he wanted to get like a $500 Lego set. And, you know, the answer was continuously no. And I was like, you know, I don't want to teach him that no, because he can't have it or he's not worthy of having it. And so I had to kind of take a different approach with that. How do you work with your kids, or, you know, kind of implanting those ideas where money is not bad, where money is a tool, you know, what are some things, I don't know how old your kids are, but, um, they are nine and seven. So we're at the same. Oh yeah. Also. I'm sure you're probably <laughs> very intentional with how you talk to your kids about, stuff and yeah. money and savings or even entrepreneurship if they have interest in opening up a lemonade stand or they you know want to be a YouTube star because they can turn it on and say you know what I want I want a camera on me I can make some money doing this absolutely yeah now we've had a lot of those discussions with our kids uh, for quite a while uh, since Zoe was four years old, we've had her help around the house doing chores. And with those chores, she would net a reward, just like my dad taught me. You work mm -hmm. hard, you, you get a reward. So we wanted her to know that ever since she was a little girl. So when she would complete chores around the house, we would pay her essentially a dollar for every year she's lived. So she got four bucks a week when she was <laughs> four. And now that she's nine, she gets nine bucks a week. And as time went on, the chores got a little harder. Now at nine years old, I am so proud to confess this. My daughter can wash her own clothes, dry her own clothes, hang them up and put them away in her closet. Like, it's just like, wow. I feel like I've won the parent lottery with this girl. <laughs> She's fantastic. But the point <laughs> is you give them money and then they make decisions with it. They can even make mistakes with it. And I think that's more important to make mistakes at seven or nine years old than 27 or 29 years old or 49 years old, because you're making mistakes with $15 as opposed to $15,000. And those mistakes help you to learn. The most the times that I've learned the most in my life are through trial and error. So if I can just get money in my kids' hands and have them essentially make mistakes with it early on, that's great. Then they're learning what type they are with money. Do they feel closer to giving? Do they feel closer to saving? Do they feel closer with, hey, man, I am so mm. happy spending this money. They're learning who they are and an early process. But then also we're teaching them that's important to have a little bit for each. So 
for the money that they get, we essentially allow them to put 10% away for giving, 10% away for saving, 10% away for investing. That just automatically happens in their accounts. And we just do it through automation and fintechs. And then we have conversations with them once a quarter about what do those buckets look like? Hey, you've got $20 in your give bucket right now. What do you want to do with that? Who are you feeling called to give to right now? Is there is there an organization or is there a cause or something that you care about a lot? And if they don't have an answer to that because they're seven or nine years old, we watch a couple videos. You know, Zoe's really called to giving that. to animals. Uh, Calvin wants to help people who are homeless have homes here in Metro Detroit. So having those conversations about those individual buckets and talking about what investing looks like from 10 years from now, showing them a compound interest calculator, show where their money's going to go. Just having those conversations. So yeah, it helps a lot. I never even thought of like the fintech thing. Like yes. I literally have, I think it's right here. I have give, <laughs> save, spend. There you go. Hey. You know, a little, you know, little zip up pockets for my and there's kids, nothing, but there's nothing but wrong with that. They don't care about it. Like they don't care about it, you know, but I don't think we put their feet to the fire. Yeah. You know, are there fintech um, uh, companies that you, I, I never thought about the electronic way of kind of having these conversations. So, yeah. You know, are there any that you would recommend? Yeah, there's a, there's a fantastic company called FamZoo that essentially has mm. a debit card and a financial literacy system for kids. So they own their own debit card. They have their own debit card. They are empowered and saying, hey, my money's on here. And then the parents have the power to say where that money goes and how it's used. And if they follow the family rules in order to get that money. So it's a really great tool. And there's lots of other tools like that out there. But Bill Dwight's the founder. He's a fantastic guy. And he developed this because he had, I think he's got six or seven kids, maybe, maybe five kids. I think he's got he five kids. You had to keep kids. track of them with the money. That's what, that's what he did. He was, he had it all on a spreadsheet and he was doing all this stuff. And he's like, I just need to develop something. So he did. Yeah. And then he started a company out of it. So yeah, it's a great app. My husband is a mobile app developer. He just worked on the Greenlight app. Oh, there you, know, you go. So I guess yes. Greenlight does have the the debit cards. Very for similar. Kids. We just haven't done it. We just haven't done it. And I think it is <laughs> something that is important, but I want to make sure that we do it intentionally as yes. well. So uh, I'd love to get more information on it. So what do you know, Andy, that you wish other people could know? Oh, wow. Uh, what do I know? I, I wish other people could know that I believe that their money can help them to create change in the world that they want to see, honestly. Mm. Um, if, you, if you start to boil down who you are as a person, who you want to see the world as a, you know, in the future, what do, you, what do you want the world to be? What do you want your community to be? Your dollars, your intentionality can make that place that you want to be. I mean, the, the person you want to be as well as the community you want to have. So I think I want to empower people with their money. It's not just a thing that's a tool that, that is bothersome sometimes. It can really be the tool for a change that they want to see in their life as well as in their community. What a perfect way to say that. How can people get in touch with you or find your work, Andy? Uh, well, if you're listening to this as a podcast, you can type in Marriage, Kids, and Money in your favorite podcast player and check me out. I'm over 300 episodes now, having great conversations with people like Congrats. Allison about, uh, again, creating change that they want to see. So uh, yeah, check us out there. Awesome. Loved having you on, Andy. Thank you so much. Isn't Andy Hill the nicest guy ever? And so much great insight about strengthening our relationships with our partners and kind of opening those lines of communication. I linked his information in the show notes, and I hope you connect with him and listen to his podcast. It's so good. I also hope you'll connect with me. I'm most active on the socials at Allison underscore underscore hair, like the rabbit. 
And you can subscribe to my weekly journal emails at allisonhair.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week with the series on big life changes.